what we're going to try to do tonight. But before we do, I'm going to invite our friend Lydia Land, L-A-N-D, up to our pulpit here. She is going to read this scripture. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. I apologize for our lack of slides. I hate making them. I love them, but I hate making them. But this is what we're going to read. It's the RSV translation. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you shall see greater things than these? And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. All right, my beloved Chi Alpha, let's pray and we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, we love you, God. We need your presence here, Lord God. Would you help us to become undone in your presence? Would you help scales to fall off our eyes that we may see you truly? Holy Spirit of God, our ears have certainly heard of you since August, but Lord, tonight, may our eyes see you. May our hearts hear you. May we obey you. May we experience you, King Jesus. We love you, God. Amen. New Mexico State Chi Alpha is a part of me. I have about five and a half, maybe six, brief yet full years worth of memories, including 22 backyard football games, 5,124 cups of coffee, three mission trips to the ends of the earth, 795 one-on-ones, 375 messages delivered, investment in the students and staff, and a closet full of crimson Under Armour that I wear almost every day, to name a few things. So naturally, departing from New Mexico to our new home in Springfield, Missouri, where Mexican food is cooked by white people instead of brown people, was a very difficult day. We preached our last Chi Alpha service as lead directors, which was beyond surreal. We had a going away party with the staff where we hugged our last goodbyes. We woke up at the Cruz's house early on Tuesday morning to hit the road before our beloved Chi Alphans went to work. As, I, as the Cruz's walked us to our truck, I hugged Taylor and admonished him with one last piece of advice. I kissed Robin on the head of the fa as the father of Chi Alpha and her, the first daughter of Chi Alpha, and exhorted her with one last piece of advice. I hugged little baby girl Charlotte, and as I left our embrace, baby Charlotte grabbed my hand and leaned into my face. And I said, what is it, princess? And she looked me in the eye and then proceeded to say her first words. She said, I love you more than my dad. <laughs> and I responded, there is room on your wall for silver medals. <laughs> That's a horrible joke. I'm so sorry. That's the worst thing ever. I made Sarah break, though. That's good. Look at you, Sarah. You have a good night. Oh, praise the Lord. 
here all night, gone tomorrow. Anyway, <laughs> is, is that funny? All right, there we go, there we go. My apologies if that's offensive. Someone's gonna go to crew now, but uh, we, love, we love those guys. Anyway, so I then hopped in my truck with my two dogs, Abby driving her car behind me. I did not make it 20 seconds, I kid you not. I did not make it 20 seconds without bursting into tears as I thanked God for NMSU and prayed for you, my people. My dog then leaned over into the front seat to rest his head on my shoulder as if to tell me it would all be all right. And then I drove down I-10 that day. I turned on I'm the man by Alo Black Sea because I am the man. And then I drove off into the sunrise. I was, is that funny? Thank you, Hope. Um, I was asked by our national director to leave my campus in effort to improve Chi Alpha on every campus, including but not limited to NMSU. When Taylor got up, hold up here and said the things that we've done here, we're trying to replicate everywhere. He's not exaggerating, that's, that's an absolute detail. That is the mission that me and my wife are on as national training directors, to help people understand the four dysfunctions of a small group, the five wins of a small group leader, the six qualities of selecting small group leaders, so on and so forth. This transition has been difficult but it's been made easier by your national Chi Alpha staff that all have something in common. The national program director, Harvey Herman, has a picture of the Nebraska Cornhusker Stadium hanging proudly on his office wall. The national personnel director, Jeff Alexander, has pictures of Ohio State University all across his desk. The national senior director, Scott Martin, can be seen preaching across the world in polos with the University of Arizona logo. Everything in their office, Everything in their closet, everything about their habitual travel destination suggests they have left their campus, but their campus has not left them. They are truly inseparable. I relate to this phenomenon more with each passing day. At my dinner table sits a pillow purchased from my family by Joseph and Sonia that reads Home Sweet Home with pictures of the Oregon Mountains across it. On my desk sits a pencil holder with Pistol Pete mean mugging me all day every day because people with mustaches think they're better than people without them. Why else would you don one in 2019? About two or three times a week, I'm wearing something crimson with a Zia symbol or pistols on it. And of course, every morning at 7 a.m., I'm sitting on my couch with black coffee in hand, interceding for New Mexico State, Chi Alpha. I have left New Mexico, but New Mexico has not left me. New Mexico State University and I are inseparable. Through observing, the behavior of myself and the national office staff, this principle has become clear. When someone is inseparable from someone else, the attachment is always love. When someone is inseparable from someone else, the attachment is always love. This must bring weight to the love of God that has not separated his person from his people. A quick study of the Bible will cement this belief. Jeremiah 30, you will be my people and I will be your God. Hosea 2, in that day you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. John 15, I no longer call you servants. Now I call you friends. There is no greater love than this, that a man would give his life for his friends. And of course, John 3:16. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
All these verses are referring to God's love, wanting to give people life, conflicting with God's justice that knows man's rebellion deserves death. And this divine dilemma is answered by God the Father coming to earth as God the Son to live the life we could not live and die the death we should have died. The price God paid to be friends with you was his own blood. This same God commands us to love people in like manner, laying down our lives for them. This is why Mr. Jiju Bonhoeffer has said, what costs God much cannot cost us little. This is why Mr. E. Stanley Jones has said, there is no Christianity that is not Christianizing. This is why Robert E. Coleman has said, the method of God to save people is people. A quick study of the Bible will cement this belief. The Lord's intention for Christians in Genesis 12, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. John the Baptist declaring he is preparing the way for the Lord. Job praying for his stupid friends to get right with God. Daniel telling kings without hesitation about the strength of God. Elijah holding no punches as he tells sinners to get right with God. The sermon of Jesus in Matthew 24, this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth as a witness and then the end will come and of course the last sentences from the last sermon of Jesus captured in Matthew 28 and Acts 1 go out and make disciples of all peoples be my witnesses to the ends of the earth and there is our text tonight John 1 43 through 51 Jesus finds Philip Philip falls radically in love with Jesus Philip immediately finds Nathaniel insisting Nathaniel come and see Jesus too the pattern of the Bible, and therefore the pattern of Christian habit is unmistakable. The person of God cannot be separated from the people of God because of his love for us. Therefore, and please hear me clearly on this, to find Jesus is to help others find him too. This is exhibited by Christopher Scroggins. He was an 18-year-old punk indifferent to the person of God, but he could not deny the love of God as it was demonstrated to him by the people of God. His heart found his maker. His soul found his purpose. His need for love found his acceptance. He then spent the next 12 years at Sam Houston State University finding, feeding, and fighting for the lost lambs of God. This led to over a decade of transgenerational discipleship existing four years after his departure. A lineage of transgenerational disciples Discipleship of well over 150 people being discipled that have gone into Colorado, New Mexico, Czech Republic, Chile, Washington, to the mission field and marketplace for Jesus. To find Jesus is to help others find him too. Now we may say, but that is a student who became a staff. That's not normal. Very well. I could tell you about Taylor Kennedy, a college student operating in pre-med in the Northeast, told by all of her professors to not pursue any, any extracurricular activities for she would have no time as she studied medicine. But she found Jesus. Jesus saved her from her sin. She could not contain her joy. A conviction for Jesus was cultivated that would not be limited by parameters like time and studies. So while being a pre-med college student, she single-handedly built a small group of 30 girls. She found, fed, and fought for the lost lambs of God. To find Jesus is to help others find him too. Now we may say, but that is a student. No one can keep up that, place, that pace in the marketplace. Very well. I could tell you about Casey Goff and Marita Franklin. 
two young ladies who graduated college left their safe Kaiafa bubbles to go boldly into the lost marketplace. They work as teachers, a job requiring one to be up at six, clocked in by seven, clocked out by five, completely and utterly exhausted when one goes home. They are not vocational missionaries. The title pastor does not precede their name. No organization has asked them to create anything, but they love Jesus and believe the great commission of discipleship is not limited to job titles and paychecks. So they built a small group composed of their fellow teachers, their work colleagues, a small group of 20 teachers that now meets on a weekly basis to be discipled by these two young women. Lives are getting saved. Schools will never be the same. Families will never be the same. Their destiny will never be the same. This is what happens when we find, feed, and fight for the lost lambs of God. To find Jesus is to help other people find Jesus too. I did not have enough time to tell you about our Chi Alpha alumni that got jobs at Facebook built a small group called Christians at Facebook that's now running over 200 people at Facebook. I do not have time to walk through the history of the one-way missionaries who bought one-way tickets to the other side of the world, packing all of their belongings into a coffin with no plan B's to return from reaching the lost. I do have time to summarize all these illustrations once again into this information. To find Jesus is to help others find him too. When Philip found Jesus, he went out and found Nathaniel to help Nathaniel find him. Perhaps conviction is setting in. This gospel must be preached, but confidence is still lacking. Like Moses, we may say we're not skilled. Like the fishermen chosen to be disciples, we may acknowledge we're undereducated. Like the disciple Timothy, we may think we're too young. Perhaps like Father Abraham, we may think we're too old. Which begs the question, how does conviction in a gospel that must be preached transform into confidence to preach it? Are you with me? A long time ago, there was a missionary named John Wesley. John was raised in a Christian home. Both parents were involved in ministry. He started a small group in college that memorized scripture and had prayer meetings. He took on a career as a minister, but had little to no fruit. After serving as an unsuccessful missionary, he boarded a boat for America where he had just accepted a pastorate in Georgia. It was on this boat ride where John Wesley realized he was not saved and he was in the ministry. Mr. Wesley, who was also serving as chaplain for the boat, was astonished by a group of Moravian missionaries who were also on board. Their presence brought God's presence. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. These are the people who had Jesus in their eyes. They had certainty in their communication. They were altogether entirely other than anyone around them. Have you ever met a person who loves God like this? They could easily be found serving the other members of the boat, throwing trash away, eating last, serving food and drink, duties that were not paid for, as they were voluntarily finding needs and meeting them. When John Wesley asked them why they were serving people they did not have to, their response was, quote, it's good for our proud hearts. The ship then experienced a terrifying storm. Waves were smashing on board. The ship was violently shaking to the left and to the right. As the entire crew and passengers and himself panicked frantically with fear, the Moravian missionaries were joyfully singing worship songs. The storm calmed. No one died. Mr. Wesley, who held the title chaplain, calmly went over to the Moravian missionaries who actually acted like chaplains to ask why their peace 
was so prevalent. Please picture this scenario with me. A man clearly identifies himself as minister. He has a cross around his neck. Perhaps he's got some Greek scriptures tattooed on his arm because he ministers in New Mexico. He has old dead, uh, old dead guy books in his study. Kai off a podcast on his phone. He preaches sermons saying things like love finds a need and meets it. What Jesus does in you, he wants to do through you. He looks, wears, reads, and speaks like a minister. This cultural Christian is John Wesley, who now walks up to a Moravian missionary to ask, why were you not afraid of death? The Moravians answer a question with a question. They said, Minister, do you have faith in Christ? This would be like you walking up to Dick Brogdon, who visited you last week, and saying, What must I do to become a better Christian? And staring off into the sunset at sea, he responds without looking at you, You must become Christian first. <laughs> That's what it'd be like. This question disrupted John Wesley's soul. He continued ministry, making no disciples, having no personal character change, citing his own personal failures this way, quote, I was indeed fighting continually, but not conquering. I fell and rose and fell again. Christian translation, I attempted ministry. I tried to make disciples, and I sinned, and I sinned, and I sinned, and I sinned. He was invited by a friend to Moravian church service. And upon hearing the preacher exposit Romans, describing the heart internal character change the Lord does when a person has faith in Jesus, Mr. Wesley said his, his heart became strangely warmed. He wrote in his journal that same night, I felt I did trust in Christ now, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that had taken away my sins. He had taken away even my sins and saved me from the law of sin and death. Jesus was no longer a fairy tale. Jesus was no longer a person in history to be studied. Jesus was no longer an impersonal God uh, desiring rules, void of personal relationship. Jesus became personal. The king showed up. God came down. And John Wesley's theory about Jesus became truth in Jesus. After this experience with the living God, John Wesley continued his ministry career. The difference was he was ministering and he was now saved. As funny as that might sound. The results preach for themselves. He traveled more than 250,000 miles on horseback to deliver the gospel. He preached two to three times a day for a total of 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. He gave away 30 pounds to ministries. He raised up 541 ministries in his career, missionaries in his career. He established the Methodist Church denomination that had 135,000 members when he died in 1791 and now has 80 million members worldwide in 2019. What is the difference between John Wesley's evangelism pre-conversion and his evangelism post-conversion? In both time frames, he had all the information of the gospel, but in his fruitful time frame, he was operating with the experience of the gospel. Information creates familiarity with a message, but experience creates confidence in a message. This, my friends, is the key to evangelism, to discipleship, to finding, feeding, and fighting for others. Confidence in evangelism does not lie in what you have studied, but in whom you have discovered. Does this make sense? 
Look at the progression of this text. Jesus finds Philip. Philip finds Nathaniel. Philip invites Nathaniel in the small group by saying, We have found Jesus, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Nathaniel responds with skepticism. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip does not respond with a lecture or rebuttal or the offer of free food or new friends or a chance to meet the opposite sex in a mixer. He replies simply, come and see. This is a simple conversation, but please note the time frame. In one week, Jesus finds Philip and invites him into the small group to discover himself. Within that same week, Philip finds Nathaniel and invites him to small group. Within those seven short days, there are no leadership training classes. There are no semesters of seminary studies. There are no practices of a preseason. There is simply a man named Philip who encountered the king named Jesus. In those brief seven days, Philip discovered Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He experienced the forgiveness of God that removes sins as far as the east is from the west. He experienced the mercy of God, which is new every day. He experienced the grace of God, which throws our iniquities into the sea. He experienced the love of God that no longer called him servant, but friend. All of which is what Moses and the law and prophets wrote. The experience of personal revelation was worth more than any educational information. Please hear me correctly. I am your national training director. I am not negating the need for education, for we all need to grow in biblical literacy, and I'm not undermining the need for training, for we all need to increase our skill capacity. I am simply saying the true confidence for evangelism does not lie in what you've studied, but in whom you have discovered. This begs the question, are we, Chi Alpha, New Mexico State, discovering Jesus? This question is not a matter of past tense for yesterday's bread will do today no good. This question is not a matter of future tense for it is irrational to believe irresponsibility today will somehow beget anything other than irresponsibility tomorrow. The question is present tense, right now, are we discovering Jesus? Are we becoming undone in the Lord's presence? Do we, like angels, declare his glory as holy, holy, holy? Do we, like Job, express our ears have heard of you, but now our eyes have seen you? Do we, like Moses, experience the glory of God passing by? Do we, like Paul, pray without ceasing? Do we, like David, meditate on God's word day and night? Do we, like Enoch, walk with God? Do we spend extravagant time with Jesus? Time that is not characterized as a bore. Time unmotivated by what other people think. Time influencing our calendar as opposed to being influenced by it. Time governed by discipline to be with God instead of rhetoric of feelings to be comfortable with laziness. Confidence in evangelism does not lie in what you have studied, but in whom you have discovered. If we are going to advance the kingdom of God, we are going to have to advance our time with Jesus. If you are a Christian leader within this room, let's be honest with each other tonight. Is our scripture reading limited to sermon slides? Is our worship of the living God contingent on bands and services? Is our confession and repentance restricted to fall retreats and conferences twice a year? Is our prayer non-existent beyond prayer meetings? Is our time in spiritual books limited to crunch time before one-on-ones to impress supervisors? If it is... Can we honestly expect to connect a campus to Jesus when we are disconnected from the living God? Confidence in evangelism does not lie in what you have studied, 
but in whom you have discovered. Are we discovering Jesus in private or is our time with him limited to places in public? The promise of John 15 is still true. Time with Jesus is the greatest methodology for discipleship and discipleship is the key to evangelization, evangelization of the world. As Nathaniel is being brought to Jesus by Philip, Jesus sees Nathaniel afar off and exclaims, Behold, look at this, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. This begins a sequence leading Nathaniel to surrender to Jesus. But before we get there, we have to ask, what in God's name does guile mean? Guile means to be deceitful, duplicitous, two-faced. Now this can take on two forms. One form we are very familiar with, as we have discussed this before, doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Has anyone ever been guilty of that? This is the older son in Luke 15, serving his father, not out of love for him, but love for his stuff. This is the Pharisees praying not to be heard by God, but to be heard by men. This is becoming a small group leader, not to save souls, but to climb a social ladder. This is wanting to preach, not to communicate Jesus, but to be seen and heard. There are limitless forms, but this is the point. A form of guile is doing right things for the wrong reasons. This is very displeasing to God. But there is another form of guile all too common, and I believe all too unknown, that I would like to illuminate tonight. So allow me to do it with a story. When my brother Andrew was in school, <laughs> he took an English class that required him to write many short stories. Andrew had a nasty habit of plagiarizing. At first he did it because he had writer's block and needed a good grade, which for the record English majors by no means justifies it. But when he was not being caught, he began to plagiarize more and more because he was easy on his time and created success in his grades. One day, however, as justice would have it, my brother was caught plagiarizing. The short story he stole was about a young boy who moved into a new neighborhood during the summer. The boy did not have any friends until one day he met up with some neighborhood kids that played baseball at a local field. The kids, led by a character he named Barney the Airplane Sanchez, brought him into their baseball playing community. The summer concluded with these new friends trying to get back an autographed baseball they accidentally hit into the backyard of a wild rabid dog. He called this story the baseball field. I said, Andrew, you idiot. Of course you stole this story. It's really called The Sandlot. And my little brother legitimately argued with me of how Barney the Airplane Sanchez was in no way a knockoff of Benny the Jet Rodriguez. And how his The Baseball Field was in no way stealing the story, The Sandlot. Do you see what is happening? He had plagiarized so habitually, so frequently, so consistently that he could no longer see his plagiarism. He had consistently done the wrong thing while not calling it the wrong thing and had now become convinced the wrong was actually right. As Winky Prattney would say, intellectual deception always follows moral rejection. Guile means to do right things for wrong reasons. But what is equally true, guile is doing wrong things and calling them right. You with me? Many of us are guilty of this guile. 
We say it's not pornography, it's just nudity on a streaming service. It's not dishonor, it's just a real conversation. It's not greed, I just don't feel called to give. It's not omission of missions, I just don't feel called to go. It's not irresponsibility, I just haven't heard God tell me to go make disciples. We tell God, I'm sorry after sin and continue sinning, believing rhetoric without responsibility is repentance. We say a prayer for God to save us, live every single day with choices and attitudes that are against God, believing sinfulness before and after one prayer is salvation. We believe following our hearts is right, although the Bible in Genesis 6-5 calls our hearts rebelliously wrong. We believe bad circumstances justify wrong character, so we do not call ourselves guilty rebels, but circumstantial victims. Evidence by Adam, the first sinner, the woman you, God, gave to me. She gave me the apple, so I ate it. We believe this in complete ignorance to the God who punishes wrong character in spite of bad circumstances. Adam sinned, and the presence of God left him. Likewise, the Apostle Paul was snake-bitten, shipwrecked, persecuted, imprisoned, beaten with rocks, inevitably martyred, yet in spite of bad circumstances, he had right character and the presence of God was with him, ruining the grading curve for all of us that want to believe suffering entitles us to selfishness. How many of us are filled with guile? How many of us do the right things for the wrong reasons? How many of us do wrong things and call them right? This is displeasing to God. I am guilty, and you are guilty. Hence the astonishment and satisfaction of Jesus to find a person like Nathaniel, in whom there is no guile, in whom there is no duplicity, in whom there is no two-face. Can Jesus see you in this room tonight and say, Behold, here is someone in whom there is no duplicity? If we are honest, the answer is no. Missionaries, students, staff, the answer is no. We have made lives of doing right things for wrong reasons and doing wrong things while calling them right. Have we not? We are filled with guile. Who is going to save us from this body of death? Jesus explains. He is supernatural to Nathaniel. He says, when you're under the fig tree, I saw you. This amazes Nathaniel and influences surrender as he calls Jesus the Son of God. But Jesus goes a step further and says, you will see even greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The statement of a stairway connecting heaven to earth and earth to heaven is a reference to Jacob of the Old Testament who had such a dream. Jacob stole his older brother's inheritance, which back then was your wealth, your security, your prosperity. He robbed it from another by conning his blind father into believing he was his older brother. This act emphasized his name. Jacob literally means deceiver. My apologies to anyone in here named Jacob. Jacob is on the run for his life now because of his guile. While on the run, he lays down to rest. In a dream, he sees a stairway with angels coming from heaven to earth and from earth to heaven with Jesus standing at the stairway. What on earth does this mean? When Nathaniel exclaims, you, Jesus, are the son of God, Jesus does not rebuttal, but responds, you will see heaven opened, angels ascending and descending upon me, Jesus, the son of man. Jesus is teaching that he is both the Son of God and simultaneously the Son of Man. Not one or the other, but both. Now please follow me. 
as the Son of God. Power is His. Perfection is His. Likewise, justice and wrath are His. For a God without governance would not be good nor God. Jesus is also Son of Man, able to be tempted like man and choose like man. For a man without choice would really be a machine. As a Son of Man... Jesus is now prone to rebellion. As a son of God, he is perfect in spite of temptation. As a son of man, he can relate to people doomed in their sin. As a son of God, he can rescue people from their sin. As a son of God, he knows no sin, so he is qualified to punish it. As a son of man, he can disqualify himself by taking on people's sin, so he may be punished for it. In Jesus... The love of God and the wrath of God become satisfied in Jesus. The punishment for our guile rests in his death so his holy nature can become our life. Jesus is the stairway to heaven who answers the doom of earth with the glory of God. Perhaps that information is enough for clarity. But if not, allow me to close with this illustration to illuminate it. Henry LaGuardia was the mayor of New York during the Great Depression. This man did a phenomenal job displaying good leadership through a bad time. One night, Mr. LaGuardia could not sleep, so he went out into the city that is his, and specifically heading to one of the night courts. He told the judge to take the night off, he's the mayor, he'll take care of everything, and proceeded to judge the cases. One of the cases involved a shop owner who had a loaf of bread stolen by a woman. Mr. LaGuardia, Mr. LaGuardia asked the woman, why did you steal this bread? She replied, my daughter's husband left us in the middle of the night. Something terribly common in the Great Depression is men regressing the boys through irresponsibility, as is always the case. The lady said, I have my daughter and three grandchildren to take care of. I can't take care of them, so I took this bread. She then looked at the shop owner and exclaimed with tears and repentance in her eyes, begging for forgiveness. Mr. LaGuardia then looked at the shop owner and said, are you willing to forgive this woman. The shop owner said he could not. If word gets out that he forgives robbery without repercussion, the entire city is not gonna take him seriously. No government will result in more robbery until his store is utterly desolate and his own life is ruined. The judge, believing in the validity of this judicial dilemma, turned to the thief and said, ma'am, the law is the law. You stole. You have to be punished. The fine is $10. This was equivalent to 150 of the Great Depression where the average household income was $1,500 a year during this time. The average cost of a loaf of bread was five cents. If this woman had to steal bread because she did not have five cents, to pay $150 in fines was impossible. You with me? The thief now trembling with fear coming with confrontation of the impossible, said she doesn't have $10. And she braces herself for jail. The judge says, I know. And he pulls out his own wallet, drops $10, and says, I will pay this punishment for you. Dick Brogdon described this in a similar story last week by saying, this gospel is the love of God has satisfied the wrath of God so we can enjoy the joy of God. If we are not moved to surrender by the gospel, we have not received the gospel. If we are receiving, but not giving this gospel, we have not received the gospel. This gospel 
The love of God has satisfied the wrath of God so you and I can enjoy the joy of God is accompanied simultaneously with surrender to Jesus and responsibility to others. This is the greater sign Jesus spoke of. It is amazing that God would see a person's devotion underneath a tree. It is more amazing that God would die on a tree for his devotion to you. This great sign of what Jesus has done for us evokes this great responsibility of what we must do for him. To follow Jesus is to help others follow him too. Does this make sense? Are you with me tonight? I would like to close then by asking you guys to respond. If you are a perennial small group member, always consuming, never creating for God, never partaking in real responsibility, always sitting on the bench, watching others to do it, waiting for a cue, waiting for a sign, waiting for a command, or just ignoring all of them. It's time for you to find Jesus and help others find him too. Now, if that's you tonight, I'm gonna to ask you to stand up and then I'm gonna ask for two more people. You can stand at any time and we're gonna pray for you. Number two, if you are a fruitless small group leader, filled with all the rhetoric, but void of all the responsibility, surrender your guile, your duplicity, your two-facedness to Jesus tonight so he can change your name and alter your destiny. If we're doing the right things for the wrong reasons, if we're doing the wrong things but not calling them right, if that's you, small group leader, small group member, then you also need to stand up. The reason we ask you to do this in public is because we believe if you accept Jesus in public, you'll have a devotional life that exists well beyond private. You'll be responsible in private. You'll love Jesus in private. You'll keep his commands in private. You'll make disciples in private. You'll make disciples in public. You will not break God's heart when no one else is around. As Tim Keller has said, religion is proven by your isolation. Who you are when no one is around, which would mean if you stand up with your peers watching you, you'd be willing to be the same person. Completely in private with no one around, just as you are in public with everyone around. My last person tonight, if you're a fruitful leader tonight and you're exhausted, small group leading is tiring, it's heartbreaking, it's filled with multiple failures. You know what I'm talking about. We win some, we lose some. We win people, we lose people. People become our best friends. They become our worst enemies. We did nothing but preach Jesus. And then you get tired and you need grit to keep going. Would you please remember the gospel? That this love of God has taken on the wrath of God so we can enjoy the joy of God. If that's you, tired small group leader, tired in real devotion, tired in real community, stressed with real responsibility, then I would like you to stand up. Simple as that. And I'm not gonna wait for you. We don't believe in emotion or anything like that. Thank you. Now what I want everyone else to do, if you wanna stand, you better stand quick because what I'm gonna ask you to do Everyone else who's sitting, could you find these people around you? Could you lay hands on them and pray? We believe in the Bible. We believe in James 5.17, which says the prayer of a righteous man. Righteous people are powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
And I know two things are true in any room I walk into. Everybody hurts and everybody lies. And usually we lie about being hurt, right? I want you to put your hands on these people. If you're in your seats, go ahead, get up, pray for these people. We don't I have one last word for you tonight. And then I will pray for you and we will all head home. Sound good? I'm not your captain anymore, but I am your dad. <laughs> so please listen to this. I, I believe a lot of us are struggling, like John Wesley. You know what I mean? We say we get up, we fight hard, but we fall again, we fall again, we fall again, we fall again. Sin seems to be inescapable. Making disciples seems to be impossible. Are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? You keep, like, like a dog, we keep going back to our vomit. For whatever reason, we cannot escape our addictions and our rebellion. Right? Thomas Chalmers would tell you that there's two ways that you can go about this, if this is you. It says one way is you can just try really, really, really hard to obey God. And like John Wesley, you're going to sin and sin and sin and fall and fall and rebel and rebel because that's just the, the wrong way. You're, you're, you're trying too much, actually. You know, The word for abide literally means to rest. Or to use it in a body language, it'd be like this. Thomas Chalmers would tell you, what we really need is an expulsive power of a new affection. What this basically means is every time I try to wash the dishes for my wife or vacuum the home for my wife or take out the trash in 15 degree weather because I live in the Midwest now for my wife, I don't want to do it. And I usually don't, you know, because I'm trying to do something and if I try to do something, I'm just going to pick me every time, right? But when I fall more in love with her joy, when I am so pleased with her goodness, when I get to see her beauty on a daily habitual basis, when I get to enjoy the joy of Abby Rodriguez, I clean the dishes, I vacuum the house, I take out the trash, I don't even need to be told to. Do you know why? Because it's the expulsive power of a new affection. The key to winning and beating sin, the key to loving God, the key to making disciples and being holy, 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 is not for you to try hard by hating something, it's for you to fall more radically in love with Jesus. And the more you love Jesus, the more you're going to fear the Lord. Fear of the Lord meaning you're not going to do anything that would ever break his heart. Does this make sense? The only way for you to have an expulsive power of a new affection is if you spend radical amounts of time being with Jesus. Read your Bibles without sermon slides. Pray outside of a prayer meeting. Worship Jesus when there's no guitar, no drummer, no singer. Be with Jesus. Does this make sense? Let's pray. We love you, God. Thank you, Jesus, that there's nothing to read, but that's a lie. We, we love you, Jesus. Thank you for your Bible. Thank you for your old dead guys. Thank you for your new living guys. We need your spirit, Jesus. Bless these Chiophans, Lord God. Our Chiophans, my Chiophans, your Chiophans, Jesus. Bless them to be filled with your spirit. Bless them to see you in all of your beauty, to become undone in your majesty, to know your name, for your name to become their nature, that they would be holy and godly and righteous and pure. We pray, O oh God, for ears that have heard of you since August, and some of these guys for two, three, five years. May their eyes now see you, Jesus. Bless them with your presence. May they help them find you, and because they find you, may they find others too. In Jesus' name, amen.